Uh, and, and certainly, no no one's calling your kid. No one's going to name their kid. You know, you know Newfoundland or, or Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. <laughs> Saskatchewan R. Taylor, get in here, Mister. <laughs> starts <laughs> that's that's how you start a uh, backseat producers I that, think. That, that is how you start backseat producers but you know this is comforting me scott because that's 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 my home that's where i came from so i think you're you're trying to make me feel at home okay uh, welcome hello and welcome to i thought they smelled bad on the outside a show uh that is kind of crunched for time this week apparently i think you have to blame me for that well, it would. It was a lot of things. <laughs> well, I'm Andrew, and I'm Scott, and, and and you may remember us from from our epic, hugely popular Black Company podcast about a year ago, I think. Yeah, it, it's been a year, so it's like you know what? It is time for Andrew and I to go through a long fantasy series. <laughs> but we did scale it back a little bit this year. Last year, fourteen books, twelve books, uh, twelve was. Wait, ten only. Ten, but we're stepping back. We're, we're going to go for a series that's only six this time around. You know what? In two or three years, we'll be down to trilogies. <laughs> well, I can still listen to that episode, and I can ex- exactly pick out the point where I start to crash. I'm like, and I start to get exhausted uh, there. Yeah, then this is where we died. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, and. Uh, no, you say it's hugely popular, and due to the way I, uh, basically for a while, there was a couple of months where I was mirroring all the episodes on Mevio.com, which got me a lot of click-through traffic and picked up some new people that way, at least for a while, and then Mevio was like, hey, we aren't going to host audio shows anymore, so, but we're going to leave all your audio shows up, so if people go to the show page there... That's the last episode, and it plays automatically. So technically, someone has heard at least five seconds of it, eleven hundred and forty-seven times, <laughs> <laughs> which is more than double one of the real popular episodes. Hey, you know it may be a hole in the system that our episode is exploiting, but I am okay with that. Yeah. I will take advantage and claim it's the most popular episode. It is. It is. It is, in fact, the best episode we ever did, and people are just sharing it around. <laughs> so, before we get into the the me the topic, I think I think there's something you guys usually do yes. on most bad on the outside. Yes, it's, it's called pick of the week, in which something for the week is cool, and we pick it. Would you like to go first? 
Yes, 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 I would. Uh, I'm going to pick something that people may remember. Let's be honest, nobody remembers me. Uh, I'm on another podcast called Funny Books with Aaron and Pauly over at ideologyofmadness.com where we mainly talk about comic books. And one of my co-hosts, Aaron Head, turned me on to the Bionic Woman comic book series from Dynamite Comics. I was a little leery of this. I'm a little bit younger than Aaron. I don't have the huge nostalgia for the Bionic Man and Bionic Woman that he does. But he told me Paul Tobin was writing it, and I was immediately sold because Paul Tobin is one of my favorite comic book writers. Uh, it has art by uh, Daniel Leister, uh, and I got to tell you, the first issue is a little bit – it's a little slow. It's a little uh, setting the stage, getting things ready. Uh, but once you get past that first issue, things pick up, and it is a heck of a good story. Uh, issue 5 just dropped this week. If you, like me, read your comics through Comixology, uh, it's easy to go back and pick up all the uh, issues for uh, for not much money, and and I highly recommend it. Yep. And oh. I think I'm going to go for uh, a game I picked off up off the PlayStation Network. It was um, originally recent, released in Japan as an on-disc thing for, like, 80 bucks because Japan is weird about the thing, how they price their games. But it came over here, 16, direct download only. And it's called Tokyo Jungle. It is a survival stealth strategy thing wherein you play animals r- trying to survive in downtown post apocalyptic Tokyo. Well, now, you say animals, you mean, like, pumas and, like, tigers. Well, okay, the story mode, which you unlock by playing the bonus survival mode, because it's a little backwards that way, you are playing a Pomeranian. A Pomeranian? Yes, you are a Pomeranian, (laughs) and apparently, like, it feeds you clues as to what's going on and why all the humans went away and why there are all these animals running around, but... Part of it is that everything from the Tokyo Zoo has escaped now that the humans are gone and are just running around. So in the story mode, you're like little little Pomeranian trying to get by now that your master isn't there to pamper you. So you'll you like you start out and you have to like beat up house cats for territory, and then you're like, oh man, there's an attractive lady Pomeranian over there on the other side of. All those wild boars. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, the story mode progresses and you learn more about why stuff happened and deal with more crazy stuff. But uh, the survival mode is even more hilarious because just the range of animal, Like, any animal that appears in the game, you can play as. You want to be a chicken? Go for it. <laughs> wow. That seems like you're just ass. That's even worse than a Pomeranian, though. I mean, you're literally a meal on two legs. Yes, and you and you have to start playing, you know, a little baby chick. You have to survive like fifteen minutes of gameplay as a chick. Ooh. And then every time, and you, part of the game is that you get old and you start to your stats go like to hell once you're old. So right. you have to keep breeding. So every, every now and again, you're back to being a chick. 
it, it mirror, mirrors real life that way. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, is it all about evasion or, or is there some sort of, do you have any offensive things? Do you have any actual abilities or is it just all about m- movement and staying away from bad things? Well, it depends on what you're playing. Like if you're a deer, you, you just run from stuff and hide in tall grass. And you, there are even like big boxes you can get under solid snake style. Nice. Can, you, can you walk around underneath them solid snake style? Yes. It is exactly <laughs> like Solid Snake. I, it is exactly like Metal Gear Solid. Like, in many ways, it mirrors Metal Gear Solid 3. <laughs> like, you can hide in the grass, and maybe you're okay. And then sometimes things see you, or you act, pick a fight with something that has friends, and so you're a gazelle on the run from, like, 15 rabbits. <laughs> that happened Cause, once. Because they're, 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 they've got a mean streak a mile wide, right? <laughs> yeah. God, I love that bit. Um, and well, so and all the, the animals that appear in the game eventually are playable. You just have to unlock them. So you can play like, you know, dinosaurs and bears. Ooh. Oh, I you got me with dinosaurs. And what's this called again? Tokyo Jungle. Tokyo Jungle. PSN. PlayStation Three, man. All right, wait. I'm I'm catching up. I'm I'm new to this whole uh, computer stuff. Um, and you know, video gaming. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, that actually sounds... I, I don't own a PlayStation 3, but that, that sounds actually extremely entertaining. It, it's it's hilarious in a weird way because you, you're just like, I'm a house cat and I am running around the shopping district of Shibuya trying to not get spotted by this lion. <laughs> and that's the other thing. The game keeps feeding you challenges to force you to do things as opposed to just sort of camp one right. or two areas. Yeah. So you'll be like, you have 10 years to get across the map and also, you know, consume this many calories of food or beat up this one. So essentially you're playing a post-apocalyptic sim of the new of the urban Serengeti. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm in. I, I like that concept. It is surprisingly addictive. Well, especially if you can know that eventually you can be a dinosaur. I mean, I mean, is it a T-Rex, a Velociraptor? What type of dinosaur uh, can it, you be? There's a Dinonychus, and then there's something else. And you also don't know Sab- what it is yet. I don't know what it is. Also, saber-toothed tigers. And I think a woolly mammoth. <laughs> so they're going for the Ice Age thing there. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, just as an aside, how have you been doing on, on backseat producers? I mean, backseat box office. I am, uh, well, we're getting into the shoulder season where I can consistently pick, like, a 20. And that's good. That's good. But that's good. But the past few weeks, I've been yo-yoing all over the place. Well, what's it? Uh, won't back down was, was brutal for a lot of people. Oh, God. You gotta figure, a movie opens this time of year. Nothing else is, it's not competing against anything. It's gotta earn at least five, right? Mm, no. Did you see? Did you see the plot line of that movie? Yes, I saw it. And then Tony and I wrote the better movie. <laughs> it just depends on us getting the Battlestar Galactica cast to reunite, which might not be hard. I mean, Katie Sackhoff is working on that uh, one show where she's like a deputy out in Montana. But besides that, are any of the rest of them working? Um. Well, there's the guy who plays uh, Mark Shepard, Romo Lampkin. He's just in every TV show. <laughs> he just is. He's uh, he's everywhere. Otherwise, I don't think anyone's doing anything. I'm trying to think. I don't... 
I sure can't place them if they are. But that's probably probably not what we're here to talk about tonight. Probably. Or is it? No, it's not. Oh, all right. <laughs> all right, so we are here to dig our way through an entire fantasy series again. <laughs> this time we're going with Jim Butcher's Codex Alera. And the, the, this one starts with a story, because apparently Jim Butcher... Is his entire creative drive is is from spite, which well, I can respect. His, his non his non urban fantasy drive is is strictly from spite, as we turned out. Which I had started reading these books and didn't know about the story behind them until I was probably up to like three or four into the series before I heard the story, and that just made them even more delicious. Well, and there's the part at the end where he talks about how you know Lord of the Rings changed his life when he was sick. Right, like chicken pox or whatever, and it's like you're you're going through this and you're explaining the background, and I'm like, you could have put the story there, man. Well, to, to be fair, he probably don't want to come off as a dick. Yeah, so he'll just tell the story anytime anyone asks at a convention or in an interview. <laughs> I, I I can't explain it, but but you should tell a story. I know you have particular delight for it, so okay. so you go ahead and tell the story of the origin of Codex Alera. So Codex Alera started out with, um, I guess, the Delray Forums uh, Writers' Workshops. So these are like little online discussion boards where, you know, you bat around writing techniques and maybe critique each other's chapters if you decide you aren't total dicks or, you know, and so forth. And one thing that I guess was the particular bone on this particular subforum at that particular time with that user base was whether or not you needed to have a good story idea to get a novel, to get a good novel, or if you could just take anything and with enough technique and, you know, characters and, you know, actual thematic stuff, thematic depth, you could have a good story out of anything. And these debates got pretty furious uh, fairly frequently, and one user kept pushing Jim's buttons about it, and so Jim finally breaks down and says, like, it finally escalates to the point, well, where someone says, yeah, well, let's see you do it. So Jim says, sure. And the guy's like, okay, so if you, if I give you a bad idea to start a novel, you'll write it and prove me wrong? And then Jim Butcher leans back very smugly, I imagine, and says, <laughs> you know what? Give me two bad novel ideas. <laughs> And the guy comes back with two topics. And honestly, I, I only think one of these are really bad. I, I think one of them, for me, isn't that bad of, of a topic. Yeah, I think... Uh, and so the two topics are Pokemon. That's horrible. And the Lost Roman Legion. And I think this guy might just have a beef with uh, people using the Lost Roman Legion as a starting point for either alt history or some... BS fantasy series. Yeah, I would never say the like Lost it, Roman Legion's an original idea, but that doesn't make it a bad idea. And I, I, I should mention the Lost Roman Legion is uh, what uh, Legion Nine for Hispania, wasn't it? Something like that. I'm the, not sure. I think it was the light. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the Ninth Legion, which did go missing somewhere in Europe, probably because they got killed by Picts. 
because that's yeah. what picks did to Roman legions. Yeah, I mean, you had Visigoths, Vandals, picks. I mean, there was no Rhodes, shortage of barbarians. Gauls. Yeah, a lot of Gauls, the Visigoths. I mean, there was no shortage of barbarians who, who are happy to kill Romans. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the funny thing is, I actually have two books sitting on my shelves waiting for me to read called uh, by Harry Turtledev, which are alt fiction about the lost Roman legion. Well, yeah. Well, the that... irony's killing me. Well, Harry Turtledove, he does his alt his military alt histories. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this is man, someone actually gave gave these to me. They're not they're not new books. These are uh, 1987 is when they were published. Yeah. So Jim Butcher turns around and is like, "Okay, I'm going to throw in these other things and maybe make it work." And it's worth mentioning that he started this the first novel of this several years before Dresden. And definitely before he took that novel writing class that taught him really how to get published. <laughs> right, right. I know the published date for the first first book, which is The Furies of Caledron, was was October fifth, two thousand four. But he had, he had been working on it for I don't I don't think I've heard him say the exact amount of time, but he'd been working on it for a while. Yeah, this was something that was in the in some drawer somewhere they pulled out and revised. So the concept is, you know, he takes, you have Pokemon, you know, cute little adorable, powerful fighting things that you keep in a ball and carry around. You want them, you can summon them and they pop out and, and then they're there and they're fight for you. So he, he basically just applied this to the elements and he went with uh, kind of more of an Eastern look at it. You have the four classical uh, elements. Well, I guess maybe not. I'm rambling. Sorry. The, you got wood. The four platonics. But w- is wood really a platonic? No, well, he, he's got the four platonics, which are earth, water, fire, and air, and then he brought in uh, the other two from right. like Chinese alchemy. Right, which is metal and wood. Which I'm like, Chinese al- alchemy is cool. If only they'd worked in some jade in there. But uh, So you have these six elements, and all the human people of this continent called the Lara have some varying degree of skill in summoning what they call furies, who manifest themselves as part of these elements. And and can fight for you. And do other stuff. And do other stuff. And and it's kind of cool where he took some of the abilities and how they could Well, I think partway, like, he started out at Pokemon, and you can really see that in the first one where you're dealing with, like, the rural Fury crafters who give their Furies names, because it's like, you can almost hear Bernard running up and going, Brutus, I choose you! <laughs> Yes, it's when, you know, when he's first out there and they're fighting off the uh, the little war bird, it's exactly what it's like. That That's pretty much exactly what it is, especially when you have an opponent who also has big hunky, hunking animals at their beck and call. Yeah, the, and I can't accurate this, this giant, basically, like, nasty bird. It's like a carnivorous ostrich. <laughs> yeah, what's the what, Final Fantasy? Don't they have those, like, little bird things with the beaks? Chocobos. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You think they're anything like that? Probably something like that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so that's kind of where he gets the Pokemon. And then I think somewhere around book three, he started watching Last Airbender. <laughs> and the fury crafting gets awesome. <laughs> the it, Yeah. Yeah. It goes from summoning these things and having them manifest to I'm going to harness their power and do awesome things. Like he even admits to the... Uh, airbender influence like there's one panel i think at a comic-con two years ago or something where he's like 
Yeah, um, you know, if someone ever offers me a big bag of money for an Alara movie, I'll, I'll, I'll say yes. But until then, um, Airbender's around. Did you see the last episode? That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, but I believe it's from the very first novel, though, where he had the, uh, where he had them writing the earth elementals. Like, you know, it's basically like a, a moving carpet of earth that could, you know, just fly and, you know, accelerate you even quicker. So he, they were literally like earthbenders writing the, the ground. Yeah, like he, he, there was already some elements of it there, and I think some of it just crystallized after that. So the story, uh, so the Lost of the Roman Legion, really, it's at least the second book before it really starts to become. I think it's vaguely referenced. In like, the first. like at, like at some point, he's he's got his teacher guy who's an expert in ancient Alaran history, where he refers to their ancestors as uh, the Romans. And how they had no fury craft and had these things called catapults, <laughs> right? And that Which was in the pays second... off so well two books down the line, right? And that was in the I believe that was in the second one where he's off at the academy and he has that teacher and he's actually out like excavating these ruins of this old emplacement. He's like, "How do they build these walls? It's like they use tools or something." Like, what the hell's with this? It's like they had like axes. How'd they what? do that? Why, why would they you just, do that? Why would you just use your fury to make a wall? I mean, shh. crazy. And there's there's actually a really good, like, I think this is against out of the supplemental material he's talked about where it's like, yeah, Alara is just sort of an interdimensional dumping ground. Because there's sense. so many different crazy weird races and they just kind of fall on there and deal. Like, I think he always tells people to reread the first book and when they go to the Wax Forest and that initial description of it, Think impact crater. <laughs> I could see that. Yeah, it's it's it, the ecology of the world makes little to no sense in terms of who's where, and it just it's like all these horrible things are, are surrounding this bastion of humanity, and they all want to kill it. Yeah, which is interesting from a story because there's there's constant conflict uh, from it. So I I guess the first book, Furies of Caledron. Uh, kind of sets forth it kind of kind of sets the stage shows you everybody is it and it kind of rotates around this young boy named tavi who oh shocker has an uncertain parentage doesn't know a lot about his dad he and he's the only alaran who can't craft a fury and for the record he is a farm boy with dreams of going to the academy in the big city that's right and maybe even becoming a citizen and joining the army yep maybe Maybe because his dad, his dad was a big, famous military guy and, you know, had had served in the army and was well respected for his military service and was quite good at what he did. Raised by his aunt and uncle. (laughs) There's a point where you can almost see him staring wistfully at a sunset and you kind of like he never mentions if this planet has two suns. I'm going to say there are. I'm sure there's water condensers there of some type. I don't know what you would call He He never has to chase any runaway slaves, though. He has to rescue some slaves. He has family members that are captured by slavers. Yeah. That he has to rescue. But so Tavi, uh, you know, he's raised by his aunt. He's Sorry, he's raised by his uncle. Uh, and as we learned in the first book, it's his aunt and uncle yeah. who are raising him. He doesn't know his parents. Um and so he's he's very much got that Luke Skywalker, as Scott was saying. I you know, I just want to get away from out here in the middle of nowhere in this rural area and go off to the big city. And of course, things happen. It's it's 
the, my criticism of the first book is that it's a bit cookie cutter for me. Like, and you, you, like, even in the structure, you see this is his first kick at big fantasy, so he's pushing a lot of the hero's journey buttons. Oh like yeah. I, like I mean, I I I relate it to Star Wars, but that's because George Lucas was hitting those exact same buttons. There's a reason why Joseph Campbell, until he died, uh, referred to George Lucas as his best student. <laughs> yeah, it's it's nothing original in in Tavi's story and his development as he goes through the books and starts to discover things about himself. It's it's nothing surprising. It's nothing you haven't seen before. Well, and then even then you don't mind it because later he Jim's much more mature as an author and he's bringing more cool things in exactly so i i you know much like the first book of dresden honestly first book of dresden was okay but it wasn't anything great the first book of codex lair is okay i enjoyed it but it was nothing great your thoughts yeah like i i like it's enjoyable and i like i really do dig the setting like especially looking back like when you read all six and then go back to the first you're like yeah, this is a pretty damn... He had this setting together. He did. He, he seemed to have had it pretty well fleshed out before like he, he started writing. He, he's. This seems like a good notebook, sort of somewhere, that he had doodles and margin scrawls and, like, bits about how catapults work if you can <laughs> make wood to do whatever the fuck you want it to. <laughs> <laughs> it, so... I guess the other way that Rome kind of comes into it is that you've quickly learned that the larger society of Alera is very much Roman in nature. You have the patricians, which are the citizens. You have the plebeians, which is everybody else. And then and, you have the slaves below them. And slaves are, you know, they're they're very Roman slaves. They're like skilled labor, reasonably well treated. It's just no rights. <laughs> yep, you're a slave. And, you know, women have a very much a backseat position in this society. They're, they're certainly, it's a male-dominated society. Although we're uh, seeing women come to the fore throughout the series, which is, like, that that's kind of a social societal revolution going on. There is. There's this Dianic League, uh, which is championing, you know, women's right, which you see from, from the beginning be a very minor organization and grow throughout the six books into much more of a, a, a force, political force in a layer. And uh, obviously the plot in this one, you have um, some political no-good nicks trying to uh, oust the current emperor because he's old and kind of lame. He, he doesn't have a heir. His son had died years before uh, in an invasion from one of their angry neighbors uh, called the Marat. And uh, so he's got no heir to really kind of take his place. So they see him, you know, all the powers that be, all the ambitious high lords, see that once the first lord... <clears throat> emperor dies there's going to be a power vacuum that they can fill and they're like they're they're just like waiting it out so everyone's jockeying so you have uh, a a pair of uh high lord and lady manipulating the marat into invading again hoping to put some egg on the faces of the the first lord except then tavi through the power of destiny and quick wits and dumb luck saves the day <laughs> In the uh, kind of interesting thing is that there, the the area where Alara sits is is connected to where the Marat live just by a narrow isthmus that connects the two. And of course, what happens to lie right there on the border of the two of them? Tavi's home. Yeah, it's like little meaningless farm holding, and 
it's just going to get rolled over. Except his uncle was in the army, and he's a pretty savvy guy. <laughs> yeah, and there is a garrison there. They, they, I mean, they they have built a military outpost to to guard this park, but their steadhold is what they call them. But their their rural farm. Uh, is right near that garrison. So as if this garrison gets overrun, you know, all their countryside's going to go down with it. And the Marat are kind of cool. They've got this, like they, they, they've got this elf look, but they do this whole soul bond with different creatures thing. So they ride around on like woolly mammoth things or carnivorous ostriches. It's yeah. Some of them are more, you know, normal, such as like the horse clan, but yeah, some of them are these, these crazy ostrich war bird things, which are just, woof. And there's a wolf clan. There's I can't remember what they call the big woolly mammoth things. Uh, gargants, I think. Which that are, sounds right. Yeah. They're they're, they're basically and, dire. They're basically dire mammoths. Yeah, they're just big and they smash everybody. And so, as part of the soul binding, Scott mentioned, uh, they kind of take on the attributes of whatever totem animal they bond with. So you know, people that bond with gargants become huge and big and tough, but somewhat slow. Ponderous, you know, people who who merge with horses tend to be these kind of wild, fast um, uh, individuals, and and so there's a, an exchange between the two. And that that's kind of the plot: is stuff happens, Tavi saves the day, and gets a full scholarship to the academy from the first lord because he's cool. And I guess one other thing that's going to be important later, you know, as we said earlier, Tavi can't; he's the only. Alaren, who can't ha- has no zero ability to to deal with furies, so his whole life he's somewhat been picked on. You know, he's, he, he's, got... he's even like small and kind of runty, so it's not he even is. like he's. So it's not even like he's good at for a by human standards. <laughs> no, he's kind of small. He's kind of a run of the litter type of look. He so can't. It's like, he... Not only do you not have superpowers, but you aren't even good at normal stuff. Right. He, like he, he, the first thing you do is you see him fuck up hurting sheep. <laughs> yes. And, and so he's got some self-esteem issues. He's got some problems. So one of the things he's had to learn is how to be more clever than, than other people. Because he can't compete with them physically. He can't use his superpowers and call them the powers of his uh, Pokemon. I mean, Furies. So he's had to learn to kind of outthink people uh, and his peers to, to kind of get by and survive. And so... Unlike a lot of people who use their furies as a crutch to become stronger, to create tools, or you know, you know, build a wall, he's had to think of other ways to get stuff done. Yeah. So the second book, uh, Academ's Fury, finds you know it's two years after the the events of the Furies of Calderon, and Tavi's attending the the academy, which is there in the the capital, the Laren capital, and he's he's being sponsored by the First Lord for gratitude for you know what he did to stop the invasion of Alara by the Marat. And he, and he picks up a couple of goofy friends. It's, it's, it's kind of Harry Potter that way, honestly. Yeah, he's got these he's got these couple of friends. They're kind of quirky. They're not the popular kids for the most part. They're kind of the outsiders. And they're total uh, contrasts from each other. And and they tend to run into these, you know, nobility, the the sons and daughters of nobility who are pretentious, think they're better than everybody, and they tend to uh, butt heads. It's almost like the no, noble sons are almost like the pure bloods, and uh, him and his friends are kind of the uh, the uh, mixed blood. Man, there's a lot of parallels to other stuff in here, isn't there? Yeah. 
So, um, and, and I guess this is an interesting point, is that uh, both this and uh, the Dresden have this interesting parallel to that initial debate that provoked this series, where it's like, you know, it is kind of derivative, but by pure storycraft on Jim's part, they're, they're still fun. It is. It's a lot of fun to read, and especially with the second one, uh, they, I, I, they start to get really good, in my opinion. And oh, yeah. You, you very much, this one takes you into the politics of the Empire, and you really start right. to see the different factions involved. Yeah. Because in addition to his schoolwork, he's also been recruited uh, you know, to pay his way. He works as, as the Emperor's page, the First Lord's page, on however many nights a week. So, uh, You also find out there's this kind of cool secret agency within the empire called the cursors who are, you know, allegedly just messengers, but are really trained to be assassins and spies and work for the emperor directly. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I love the scene where, you know, him and his friends who are also part of this kind of secret cursor training that going on, go, go to, with their masters, kind of this older wise Zen like guy. Well, he, He's vaguely, he has this outward eccentric persona and yes. then when when it's time for business is game face <laughs> all business so he goes down there and they're they're sparring and and Tavi's being matched up against these people and he keeps losing and keeps losing and keeps losing and you know all of his friends obviously are feeling really bad for him because he's he's looking really bad in front of, of the boss in front of the, of the teacher and man you know they're all done with their train session they're all leaving and the guy the the teacher calls back Tavi and you know everybody gives him looks like oh Sorry, buddy. You're you're gonna get it. After they all leave, Master's like, "Good job. You made them think they beat you. I, that, well done. You you succeeded at the task I gave you." It really gets this whole these circles within circles within circles that you start to see more and more of as the books go on. Yeah, and this is the book that introduces another race um, with the Canum, who are just seven foot tall wolfmen. Yeah, essentially they're wolfmen that, you know, werewolves that never turn into anything else besides their giant werewolf form. Uh, and I uh, I really like the Canum. They are probably my favorite non-human race in the book. The, the, they might be one, they're up there for like favorite non-human race in fiction. I'll agree with that. I'm I'm on board. Um, there's also another race introduced to this one that I is my least favorite non-human race. Uh, because while Tavi's at the Academy... Some bad stuff starts going going down back at home with these uh, kind of insect-like invaders called They're those. the Zerg. They're the Zerg. <laughs> yeah, but the, could the Zerg take over people and use them as drones, essentially, like the Vord can? Uh, it's one of their unit abilities. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm in then. Uh, well, yeah. I just think of it because they always need like the wax forest to move over, and I'm like, yeah, that's Crouch. <laughs> <laughs> You know you're you're a hundred percent right about the like, coach thing. Like in the later books, when the board get the board problem gets really bad, and they start describing wax just coating whole like states and cities, I'm like, in my head that wax is purple. <laughs> you are you know that I had that same same reaction when I was reading. I was like, man, that's exactly like Starcraft. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the board. Uh, Tavi kind of screwed up a little bit in the first book while they were, he was off stopping, you know, the war with the Marat. and might have woken these guys up. Like, they, they were just chilling in their forests, and he woke up something big and nasty. 
Yes, and, and now it's also invading. It's it's the the Marauder having trouble with it. The uh, uh, Laren's up on that part of the continent are having problems with it. But not and, like big problems or any problems that would make anyone care. Right. It's not like there's a horde of them outside the garrison waiting to kill them. Just people are missing out. You know, steed holds are becoming depopulated mysteriously. Like cows just mutilated. <laughs> Oh, yeah, mutilated cows everywhere. Uh, and then there's this waxy growth that, that starts kind of popping up, and uh, which, which, as Scott said, is the, basically the crouch for the ward. And I, I don't like the ward at all, Scott. Yeah. There's nothing I like about them. I Like, they're a force of nature. They're, like, you, you start thinking of them as sort of just this natural disaster that's coming. But you know they are kind of a, a natural disaster because they don't have any personality to them. But they're not they're not natural in the sense of the natural world order because they're they're obviously outsiders to this this yeah. world. And like they're, they're just, just mostly there to excavate the existing problems between the other races and within Alera. Right. And they're just they're impersonal. They have they have no character to them. Even later on and other which we'll get to. But at no point do I really like them. Like, you you don't feel like, ooh, this is exciting the way you might get out of, say, like if this had been the same thing with zombies. Right. It just seemed it seemed really contrived and artificial. And I was thinking, when I think of my picture of the aliens, honestly. Yeah, there's there's a fair bit of alien in there, too. Yeah. Uh, but Zerg's a great comparison as well. And, and well, especially just... later when you get the Vord Queen, who's totally not Kerrigan. No. <laughs> no, 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 she's not the Queen of Blades at all. But, uh, man, there's, seriously, there's so many parallels. What I'm talking about, they all we, come we... crashing in. Okay, fun drinking game for this episode, guys. Stop this, start again, and just do a shot every time we name drop something else. <laughs> so, in the, it, you know, if we do it indirectly, take a drink, and then we directly... Do it, then take a second drink. And yeah, it'll be a good day. Do not do do not do this while driving. If you feel your if you can't feel your front teeth anymore, stop. <laughs> or if you can feel your front teeth, stop. Because <laughs> that because that's like the one the stage after. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's a good early warning sign. If you have to check your front teeth, if you feel like you need to check, stop. Yeah. So. Yeah, so I just I don't like the Vord. I I just found them bland and uninteresting, and they were the weakest part of this book for me. I, all the stuff at the capital that was going on, aces. The yeah. politics between the High Lords, awesome. The Vord, eh. yeah, they're they're just there. Yeah, they they just seem like a very contrived threat. Uh, to, when there's plenty, it seems like there's plenty of other story opportunities with th- these Alarans being surrounded by natural enemies. It seems just weird like this, oh, aliens are here now. Watch out. And th- this this might come up later, but Jim has other ideas for the setting that I really want to see happen. Are these the are these the uh flash forward in time ones? Yeah, there's a there, like I think he's got one prequel about like the second generation after the the uh Legio 9 Hispania shows up. I did look it up. That that's the one that got lost. Nice. So, but yeah, so you talked about doing a prequel, and they also talked about going forward in the timeline, too, yeah. and, and writing some. Um, 
But the, essentially, the story ends. Uh, the people out on the frontier are able to kill off the Vord, and, and they're all worried about because some of them have escaped, so they try to alert the proper authorities. Proper authorities don't seem all that interested in learning more about the Vord and seem to think these hick farmers from the frontier don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. There's also a lot of... Like, as much as, you know, you have the nobles, the plebs, the slaves, there's also, like, this level where, like, plebs from the... Plebs from the frontier are lower than regular plebs. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, plebeians from the capital are, are much higher on the social ladder than, than the plebs from out in the frontier because they're just a bunch of hick farmers trying to carve out a piece of land and grow wheat. And, the, and they name their furies. Oh, yeah, which is so so silly. Yeah, and I, I love the rationalization that uh, far, like the, the, the frontier fury crafters are better at it because they don't know they can't do this stuff. Yeah, by by giving it a personality and calling it by name, and they're basically the the furies out on the frontier. The theories is they're they're less domesticated. Yeah, they haven't been broken up into the kind of component parts by uh, by a bunch of different people using them. And because the furies do tend to get passed down through family lines in the noble houses. Whereas back at the capital, you know, the nature's been so domesticated that they've kind of lost all personality, and, and uh, with that, along with that, some of their strength. Yeah. So, anything that. else? Anything no. else we want to say about Academic Fury? Um, this is when I actually started to like. Uh, God, what what's her name? The uh, Isana. Not not Isana. Uh, his uh, his buddy, his his friend at the academy. No, uh, Tavi's um, Marat girl thing. Oh, uh, let's see. Her dad's name is Druga. Um, hold, on, hold on. This is bad. She's a major character. Uh, but she's just the Marat. <laughs> it's like I never think of her by name. She's just she's just the Marat that hangs out with Tavi. Uh, Amara, right? Amara. No, yeah. no, no. Shoot, no. That's the cursor lady who uh, mm. marries Bernard. Um. Uh, hold on. Uh, processing Kitai. Kitai, that's it. Like that's she has this sort of like the. She's got this. Honestly, she's an anime character. Like she's probably the lead girl from a magical girlfriend series. She's got the big eyes. She, she's she's got the big eyes. She's Bell Dandy. <laughs> or m- maybe better is uh, Lum from Urusei Atsura. <laughs> It, we kind of glossed Drink. over this. <laughs> exactly. We kind of glossed over it earlier, but in the first book, she plays a, a fairly large story about Tavi being able to stop the invasion. Yeah. And at some point, while they're going through this trial together, they almost seem to bond with each other. It almost seems like she sold bonds with him instead of with, with an animal. Just an interesting perspective that Marat have on, on humans, but... Well, they're just like a horse or a gargant. They walk on two legs. Yeah, um, they do. They do, they help me do useful things. And so Katai, because of this, you know, Tavi doesn't really understand at this point, but sh- she does. And so she's she, annoyed. It's like could have just gotten a horse. Would've she really easy. She really wanted to be a member of the horse clan. <laughs> kind of pissed, but she's not. Um, so she she actually follows Tavi into the the Empire Center in the second book and starts spending. Uh, time with him because she knows that they're bound and he doesn't know it yet. And no one's really explained it to, to the dumb human yet. Cause he's just an animal, but, uh, she's that, staying. There's him. almost the assumption that he should already know. 
Yeah, like it's like tra- explain to someone why you breathe. Yeah. So you, you start to see more of her. So what hap- what's she do in this book that made you start to like her more? Well, it, it starts here and then it comes full swing around like book four. But I think it was just she stopped being this outward, you know, annoying antagonist. I'm better than you all the time and just being like, God, you're an idiot. I'm going to help you not be an idiot for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to open this door for you and take you down to the store cuz I know you can't find it there yourself. Yeah. You'll just mess it up. Um yeah, I can't say I started to like her in this one, but uh uh she definitely was more enjoy I didn't dislike her as I did in the first book. Yeah. Um and, and later on as the book's going, I do start to really like her. She becomes more of, you know, a member of the team if you will. Mhm. Go team Tavi. <laughs> Go team Tommy. <laughs> He's the Sokka. Like <laughs> he, he kinda is. Well, especially when we get to book three, transition. <laughs> Cursor's Where... Fury. You might have known a uh, you might have noticed a uh, a naming convention to these books, by the way. It is worth noting that the working title of the first book was Shepherd Boy's Fury. <laughs> was it really? Yes. I did not know that. That is true. Uh, I'm glad they changed it to be honest. Yeah, like I think it it works with the theme, but it would not have sold for shit. It would not. It would not have appealed to me looking at it on the shelf, at all. So, curses especially Fury, when the covers like lightning striking a sword and ghosts fighting things, and it's like Shepherd Boy's Fury. What <laughs> is that a typo? Um, this is honestly my favorite book out of the whole series. Oh, that it is it. It's this one or the next one, man. This one, because the Vord are gone, which is what really kind of detracted from book two for me. So the Vord are out of the picture for book three. And uh, the Canum play a huge role. And oh my God, I love the Canum. Oh. Like, okay, so the setup for this one is uh, it's two years down the line again. And Tavi is a uh, cursor. But. They need him to keep an eye, a closer eye on some a, a new pet project of the First Lord, which is a brand new legion specifically loyal to the First Lord. Because prior to this, uh, in the feudal system they had set up, the legions are all operated by each of the High Lords at their own discretion. With right. the First Lord saying, hey, maybe you should have a garrison here. Kind of important. <laughs> Yeah, each High Lord is responsible for having three legions uh, active. And the more powerful they are, usually the more forces they had under their command. To... Usually, usually like, eh, like that's 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 one another dick measuring contest between lords. It's like, well, I'm putting together a fifth legion. <laughs> well, and there's the one legion that there's, there's essentially the wall. You know, it seems like there's some other book I've read where there's a wall to the north and there's Made bad stuff. Made of ice. <laughs> <laughs> Made of ice. And there's bad stuff on the other side of the wall. And there's and there's a whole there's a whole organization dedicated to keeping to guarding this wall and like watching it. Like like it's they Maybe watch from the wall. All day and at night. Yes, yes, all day and at night. They watch. Uh take your drink. <laughs> take your drink. Um I may have to go get one here in a minute, actually. But um yeah, again. It really hits you over the head when we talk about them all together like this. Yeah. Um, so, you know... But this new Legion, um, so Tavi, yes. so they insert Tavi as the captain 
no, no, no. He's the, he's the like the lieutenant, right? He's like he, he's like the logistics guy. He's he's the lowest rank in the military, essentially the lowest officer rank. Like he's he's the lowest officer rank, and he's, he's just there to keep an eye on things and make sure training and the first set of like mock maneuvers or whatever go right. well. He's essentially, I think he's the sub-tribune to the guy who's in charge of logistics. Yeah. Or less. So, so that lets like him wander around. and keep down the line to the guy, to basically the quartermaster and ditch digger. Yeah. So he, he should not, you know, the, the idea is that he'll just be Quartermaster slash engineering corps. Let's call it that. Yeah. And the idea is he's just there to watch and observe and report back on, as I recall, it's, it's kind of the loyalty of the officers and if they're really going to fall in, see if there's anyone trying to sabotage it from the inside. Because the High Lords are not, as you might expect, excited about the idea about the Emperor, who's also the most powerful uh, Chandler. Fury. Fury Crafter. Fury Crafter. Yeah. Uh, also having more military power. They're not... They're not the high lords. The other high lords are not super stoked about this, especially idea. since they've spent like five years or so, more than five years, you know, positioning themselves to be in charge. <laughs> yeah, it's he been, gets a little too old for it. It's been four years since they, uh, some of them, you know, caused an invasion by the Marat, and and they're still waiting for the high lord, uh, the first lord, to, to die. Of course, shocker, things don't quite work out the way they plan, and they end up. Being the only force left uh, to guard from an invasion of Canaan, <laughs> and, and not even just like the Canaan are known. It, they've mentioned many times through the first uh, several books that the Canaan are known for being basically like these Viking raiders on their on their. Uh, I guess that'd be the western coast of Alaska. Yeah. They just they, show up. They hit the fu- they hit the fishing villages, and they're like, "Dang you!" And then they sail off. They're known as like being the best sailors uh, on on the world, and. They're huge and strong, but they never they don't invade. They just, you know, raid. They annoy us. We put more boats out and hope it works. <laughs> right. We you know, Fury show up, legions, you know, show up. The, the they're usually smaller forces, so the legions with along with the Fury crafters supporting them can usually overcome them if it's a major thing. But usually they raid, hop in their boats and sail off. It's just it it's another annoyance. Like, you know, Fury storms up north kill, you know, all the corn for one steadholt. <laughs> right. Or or the Iceman attacking the wall made of ice. <laughs> trying to get through <laughs> to ravage the southern lands. Anyway, um so but this isn't the normal raid, is it? No, this is full on invasion and this time they've brought their priests which have crazy blood magic. Right. Unlike the Alarans that use the Furies, uh the these blood mages that Canem have use their blood or the blood of some other sentient beings to cause crazy destructive magic to happen. Yep. And I like their particular tradition of wearing clothing made out of the body parts of whoever their enemies are. Yeah. Special leather. <laughs> wow, that doesn't look like regular leather. Nope. <laughs> So and of course things go even more wrong when all the officers get killed immediately. <laughs> right, you know there's a big gathering meeting and and I, I honestly I don't remember exactly how I it think happens. they called down lightning. Something did, yeah. And I can't remember though. Was it the kingdom who called down lightning, or was it a uh, was it a saboteur that called down lightning? I think it was like it was a saboteur operating with the Kanan. Right. Okay. Who I uh, basically targeted them in for it. And because of some basically dumb luck that uh tavi had picked up the item that made the sab that the saboteur had that gave them protection from 
the blood Doom magic. lightning. Yes, yes, there, there. That's true. There's that. There's that gym thing that protects you from blood magic. So that's, he's that's like it. the last guy left alive, and it's like, you know, I'm not a real army commander. Well, good. We're not a real army. <laughs> and so essentially, the geography is such that they bottleneck at this bridge. The kingdom have kind of taken over part of Western Alara, but they can't really get across. They can't cross this river, except at this one bridge. Yeah. So. That and that's exactly where this one legion is is holding this one bridge. And then it kind of turns into three hundred for a while, but with <laughs> magic powers. Wait, I I, I got to drink again. Hold on, drink. <laughs> and so they hold out against you know against a, a vastly numerical uh, superior uh, numerically superior uh, force that keeps attacking them. They keep holding this this bridge. They keep holding. They Tavi keep holding keeps it. coming up with crazy things for these untrained uh, fury crafting knights to do. And I gotta tell you, Scott, there were parts during those battle scenes where I was like yelling and screaming. Uh, cheering even yeah oh my god i mean it's not original but it is some great reading yeah i i was i was so caught up like at that one point where the it looks like the flag's falling and they get it back up i was like yes (laughs) they they will not come and and there's like some great verbal sparring between tavi and the head shaman (laughs) yeah they have some they do have some parlays out in front of the bridge where uh Tavi talks to them, and also the military commander, uh, guy who becomes fairly important as we go on. Yeah, like it, it very it settles into this bizarre relationship of um, it, it's almost like Patton with uh, Rommel. Rommel. Yeah, it's like you magnificent bastard. I read your book. Well, the Kingdom Society is like, yeah, we don't really, re- we don't regard friends as much. We'd much, we much, we regard our honored enemies much higher than like friends or family. Like the best thing you can have is like have a Kingdom call you like their honored enemy. Like, you, you keep me, you, you keep me on my toes. I respect that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's 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 oh God, I just love it, I, and I can't tell you about anything great new original i just love the story of them holding this bridge against the kingdom yeah and that, and that's really all it is like last time it was all politics all the time and some vord goings on like there were three plots kind of going and here it's just like bridge <laughs> yeah there's a little there's a little politics going on off screen with asana running around and, and doing some stuff but for the most part it's it's just him holding this flipping bridge and it is awesome <laughs> it God, I just want to go reread it now. It's, it's, it's a fantastically well done battle sequence, uh, a siege uh, that that goes on and on, and it just it doesn't get old. It doesn't get stale for me because yeah. that happens sometimes when it drags on, uh, like the siege of uh, that elf town in Shinara, the elf stones of Shinara. Like, oh my God, are they still fighting? Really? And then you then you step back and think, Shinara. Is that still going? <laughs> <laughs> apparently, you know, I haven't read one since I was in junior high, but apparently it's still going. Like I and I and I understand that there's spin-offs and prequels and side stories and stuff, but it's just like really Terry. Look, look, she's got a mortgage, Scott. Yeah. It's like it's like R.A. Salvatore. Occasionally he's got to write a Dritz book to make some money. No, he's got to keep writing them so Watsy won't take his character away. Is that part of his contract? No, like, 
this is the story with Salvatore is that they he was like he did the trilogy the fir- the first trilogy. He was right, like, right. okay, that was fun. I told the thing, and now I'm done. And that's like, okay, well, Driz sells a lot of novels, so we're gonna get this other guy to do one. And it's like, no, you don't. No, we say the first trilogy. You mean the Icewind Dale trilogy, or the uh, uh, you know, the Homeland Soldier no, Exile? Ice Icewind Dale. Like, Icewind Dale. He, okay. he thought he was done with that. But nope. But then it's like, wait, you're you're just gonna give him away? Yeah, that that's what the contract says. We own him. We can do what we want. It's like, fine. I'll write you another one. Like he's well, possessive enough of this character, just keep doing it. And for a while, it's awesome because that that uh, Homeland Exile Sojourn series uh, was I, amazing to me. I, I love that trilogy. Like, and as much as I, rip, I, I will bitch about Driz novels. It's they they still gave me Jarlaxle, and he's fun. Jarlaxle is fun, and when Jarlaxle teams up with Artemis and Trieri later on, those those guys are like the best buddy cop movie ever. ever. But the, 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 that those for the first two books of that set were awesome. Yeah. So. But back on topic. Back on topic. Uh, Curse four? of Fury. It's yeah. I mean, it's awesome. Uh, favorite of the series. So so it ends book book three. Basically ends with them effectively. Although there's a lot of Kanem still alive and wandering the countryside. Essentially, they're defeated. Yeah, they're they are routed. Strategically speaking, they're done, and they come to an agreement between the military leader, the Canem, and uh, Tavi that they're going to help. Basically, you find out that the Canem kind of forced out here. Yeah. They didn't really – because they brought all these dependents. They didn't really want to come and invade. They really didn't Most of their forces were merchants and craftsmen. Right, they're unarmed. They're they're rabble given makeshift weapons, and since they're huge giant wolf creatures, they're still fairly effective for being untrained rabble. Yeah. Um, but they're definitely irregular troops, and and they had some regulars too. But you find out that they, they, they didn't. This wasn't really their idea. Uh, that the spellcasters kind of forced them out here to invade Alara, and they brought their non-combatants to basically found a colony here. Yeah. Which gives us book four. And I'm tr- okay. Well, uh, see, this is the bridge book, so I can't quite recall what happened. So this is Captain's Fury. This is uh, where they try to get him the the Canem home. Yeah. <clears throat> at the, you know, I can't remember if it's at the end of three or start of four, but basically, Tavi says we will get you guys back home to your land, and we don't have to fight anymore. We don't have to annihilate each other. You guys, we can make our peace, and we will we will help you get back to where you need to go. And one of the things they did was that the spellcasters had burned, as I recall, some the of the some of the Canem ships. Not all of them, but they'd burned enough that like the civilians couldn't hop back in. But and it's sail like, back. yep, you're stuck here now. Right. You got to kill all these humans and make a home here. <laughs> so I love what the solution is because they, you know the Lairs don't necessarily have a shipbuilding industry. They they have ships, but you know it's not like their their thing. Like they 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 just go up like they they make river boats. They, or they coastal, try, yeah, and coast and coastal skiffs. They don't they they don't go across that ocean. Yeah, they're not in deep sea sailing. So what they do is they take these giant icebergs. Oh no, wait, that's later. Sorry, that's later. That, that's, that's later. later. <laughs> that's later. Sorry, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. So, um, in fact, you know, I think the more I think about this, I think I might have jumped far. I think maybe the war with the Canaan was still going on at the start of this book. Yeah, like they're still hunting them down, and then, 
the kingdom had kind of settled back and they weren't really pushing to invade the rest of the, the countryside. And so the pressure was kind of off, but they were still there and had still kind of taken this big swath of land. And of course this book takes place two years after the third book. Um, and so kind of the war effort, as I remember, and, and again, my memory may be imperfect, is that this, the politics kind of started to interfere with the Alaren's ability to prosecute the war against the Canaan. Yeah. Uh, you get a lot more politics with Asana and this guy named Senator Arnos, who's a dick. Um, oh, yeah. Like this This is uh, Lord Kellair doing more messed up shit, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Lord Kellair is very involved. Right. He's, he's He tries to stage a coup. That was it. Like he yes. starts a military, an outright civil war. And, and, you know, they go out there and, and they like try to take Tavi. One of the other plot lines is the senator tries to take Tavi away from being the commander of the, the forces that are fighting the Canaan. Because, you know, he's not actually from the military, as it turns out. <laughs> well, it's awesome. Like, I remember there's a couple of points in this where they're talking and they're like, yeah, what's your name again? Uh, and that's where you're from. Huh. Yeah, the name I use isn't my real name either. It's it's, it's cool. We don't really care. <laughs> you're taking good care of us, and, and you're you know leading us successfully in battle. Like, we, and, we like that's the thing is the legion <clears throat> he's under don't care. They really don't. And there's even this guy who's spying on him, who's posing as one of, like the veteran soldiers, uh, sergeants essentially. Yeah. <clears throat> and he's like, yeah, I just don't care. It's like you know what, I'm I'm supposed to betray you. I don't wanna. <laughs> You're good for the empire, right? And so yeah, so and then there's the 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 coup with with Calaire in this one. Excuse me. <clears throat> so Tavi's kind of at this point where they're trying to depose him. The people they put in charge are just screwing it all up, and the Larens are starting to get slaughtered because you know they don't listen to anything. They don't listen to the people who've been out here fighting them successfully to, for two years. And so the new forces and the new kind of command structure that rolls in is just just making a mess of it. Yeah, and so they at the end of it they settle the civil war and manage to broker peace with what's left of the kingdom, and it's like we'll take you home. I'm pretty sure Gaius like makes a volcano erupt just to fuck with Kalair. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, right. Because there's this there's a scene where where Gaius, who is also the first lord, uh, yeah. I don't I don't know if we've ever put those two titles together, but yeah, Gaius. He has to, you know, there's all these furies, and they, they have all these oaths you've seen all through these books where they swear by these great furies, right? And, you know, they're usually giant mountains, all volcanoes or oceans or whatever. And they, you know, <laughs> Gaius lets on, like, because people think these are just, like, mythical beings, like, they they can't really exist, right? No, no, they're, 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 they're just... It's just mythology, right? They're fairy tales. <laughs> exactly. But it turns out these great furies actually exist. And, and they, the First Lord gets to talk to them. <laughs> and you can't really control them, but, but you, you can, can, you can you, poke them. <laughs> you can prod them. You can kind of stick them with a poker and get them to react. And so if he gets close enough to this volcano, and this is kind of a ridiculous plot setup, but it was fun reading. So they go commando style into the jungles around Calera's southern city where this giant volcano is. And he can't use, he can't use any of their, their bending because they'll, they'll get caught. Yeah, Calera will know. He's got stuff set up that if, if Gaia starts using his uh, fury crafting, they're going to be on him like, like stink on shit. Yeah. So uh, maybe I should have said white on rice there. But, uh, we run explicit. 
Okay. So it's him and Bernard and uh, that cursor lady, uh, Amara. Amara. It, it remember, Gaius is an old man. Like they have to drag him most of the way. Gaius is like eighty or ninety. He gets around real well because he uses all of his fury crafting to give him better strength and quicker and more endurance and not to feel pain. You can't use any of, any of that as they tramp through what I pictured as Vietnam. Yeah. Reading through it, I just it was just like I was reading a Vietnam novel with uh, an old man and uh, two soldiers, mm-hmm. and uh, of course, Calaris forces were the Viet Cong. Um. It's it's kind of brutal. Like you really start to worry about this old guy who's just kind of been this rather distant, benevolent figure. Powerful. For... Powerful figure. Yeah. I mean, the, he can do unbelievable things with his fury crafting. And now he's just like this old man who needs to change his socks every two hours or his toes are going to start falling off. <laughs> and he can't change them himself. And it's also at the end of this one, they finally realize they they finally come right out and say what Tavi is short for. <laughs> oh yeah, because Gaius, uh, obviously from a line of high, lord, high lords, is Gaius uh, Sextimus, uh, Sextus, and his son who died was Septimus, six seven, and then Tavi is short for Octavian. <laughs> yep, Ison is actually his mother. His father was the former heir to the throne. Who died shortly after impregnating his mother right before the uh, Marat invaded. Yep. And, you know, he was the, his, you know, he was going to take uh, Isana and, you know, introduce him to his dad and she was going to be his bride and yada, yada, yada. And then he died before any of that could happen. And it's worth noting that throughout the past book, uh, past two now, I guess, they've, they've really built up Septimus as being sort of, you know, the sort of typical fantasy king who's like, he united all the people and made them forget their differences and made everyone better just by being awesome. Yeah. And then book three, it's like, you know, you kind of, like, there are characters who've served with him. Where it's like, you know, you kind of remind me of this guy. He was he was kind of a jerk, too. I mean. <laughs> yeah. What I love, you know, um, something we haven't really talked about yet is that a lot of these important people have what are called, uh, I don't know if I'll say this right, but singulares. Singulares, so, yeah. And they're basically their bodyguards, personal bodyguards that walk around. And usually the more powerful the person, usually the more badass their bodyguards are. Yeah. And so Septimus uh, had some pretty badass uh, The greatest swordsman in the world. The two best swordsmen in the world, honestly. Yeah. He, he had Aldric, Exgladius, and then he had... Uh, Flodeus. Uh, uh, Valerian, right? Yeah, Valerian. Yeah. And there's this whole story about what happened with these bodyguards after uh, Septimus died, because they essentially failed their duty. Yeah. They weren't there to protect him because they were sent off to protect uh, Tavi's mom, who was uh, pregnant with him. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, there's all this guilt about the one. Like, well, if he'd been there, maybe he wouldn't have died. And I do love that 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 storyline advances this book as well. And God, I love that storyline. Yeah, because it turns out this kind of half this guy, deaf mute like, idiot, deaf mute idiot guy, that's just been the uh, Bernard Bernard's you know blacksmith. He you know he's yes. a metal work. He he's a, he's a genius metal crafter. Just you know only speaks about four words, but you point him at a forge, he'll get the job done. And he has or a giant. So you thought. 
And he has a giant brand on his face that the legions only put on cowards, basically people yeah. who, who ran from battle. And so he's got this giant brand of cowardice. So people have always treated him very, very badly. And he just takes it, you know, for book after book, he just takes their abuse and punishment. And then it's like, yeah, nope, that that's he put that brand on himself because he it's a hell of a good disguise. Because it's a well, it's a hell of a good disguise, and he believes it. Yeah, he does. He has some guilt wrapped up around that. Yeah, but yeah, so greatest swordsman in the world happens to be Tavi's uh, servant, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Uh, man, I'm sure that's like something else I've read, but boy, I can't quite place it. Hidden protector, greatest person in the world, the greatest guy in the world to protect a hidden king. Anyway. 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 So if you know that one, leave it in the comments and then take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, so this is the one where they end with uh they're gonna head back. You know, they they make peace with, with the Canaan. Uh Kalar goes down in a giant uh when the volcano basically goes off and wipes out his capital city. Yeah. And um uh, uh uh, Gaius Sextus makes it back home uh, afterwards, and he's a little, little dinged up, a little banged up, not quite himself, but makes it through. Uh, Gaius tells Tavi who he is, as you said, and Tavi says, "Look, I made peace. We got to get these guys back." Gaius says, "Okay, take this cohort of, of this legion with you, and you know, God go with you." Yep. Good luck, and because he's already like. And it's not like it's inconvenient for him because he's already got this halfway planned out. Like he could have told him any time, but it's like, ooh, I get to formally declare my heir and then send him a continent away so he can't be assassinated. <laughs> right, because one of the things we've learned through the previous books is that uh, Septimus's death, eh, probably an assassination. Really, probably, probably was just an assassination by by competitors for the throne as their first move to open open a way for them to become the the first lord themselves. Because, like, and throughout this, we like there's a bunch of forces uh, aligned against Gaius, but the face of it has always been uh, Lady Aquitaine, who, yeah, she's just a power hungry bitch, but sexy, but smexy, yes. Mm, mm. Get get all quibbly just thinking about her. So that brings us to Princeps Fury. The uh, so kind of the heir to the throne in this fantasy world is is called the Princeps. So there, there you go. go. All right. Um, so he heads off with the Canem, but, but shocker when he gets back to the Canem's homeland, things are not all flowers and sunshine and, and puppy dog fights. No, it's, Hey, the Vord have killed almost all of us. We're down to three cities, guys. Hope you can help. Yeah. You know, the, the Canem were apparently this gigantic continent of just billions, millions, if not billions of Canem lived there. They called them ranges, and they were just spread. And they were just—I mean, each range was bigger than all the Alarans put together. Yeah. And then the Vord that uh, uh, Tavi woke up, and, and they chased off in book uh, two. Yeah, yeah. That—that's where they went. Yeah. And uh, another little fact is that um, uh, Varg, who was the Canem ambassador to Alara, has kind of struck up an odd friendship with Tavi, and he keeps calling him Tavar. It's just like. And he assumes it's because he he can't work the words quite right. 
And this book introduces you into what a Tavar is. <laughs> yes, yes. Which is a Wolverine. <laughs> well, it's it's like a Wolverine demon, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a demon Wolverine. <laughs> I mean, it's not just like an animal. It's like these little vicious things that, that they call, like, demons. Uh, like these demon Wolverine claw and fury things that are, like, aren't they, like, small but amazingly fierce and deadly? Yeah. At this point in book five... We've, we've got all the pieces in place, and it's just all of them tumbling down in glorious fashion. Because over on one continent, you've got Tavi with a small cohort of legionnaires in the kingdom against an overwhelming horde of Vord. Back on Alara, you find out the Vord have actually crossed over to Alara too and are starting to do bad things. Yeah. And now everyone's like, oh, hey, those crazy steadholders were right. Let's band <laughs> together. Let's get them together, and they'll they'll save us. Well, and it turns out they do, because, hey, catapults. Catapults are awesome. And, you know, the the Vord very much use these swarm tactics, so just, you know, think aliens or like zergs. They, or... They, they, they're mindless peons. They just rush. They win by numbers. <laughs> yes. They don't really have much in the way of tactics for the most part. But as as you're over in in the Canaan homeland, you kind of find out why there aren't even more. Essentially, there there was there was a queen, and she started making other queens. But the other queens she made were um, crazy. Uh, well, cra- <laughs> crazy. They also couldn't have offspring of their own. Yeah. Which so made she, them crazier. <laughs> yes. So she neutered them so that they couldn't be basically. Replace any sort of independence. Right, they couldn't just make their go off on their own. Uh, but you could use them to command because the 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 Vord are much more intelligent and effective when they have a queen directing them. Without the queen, they become much more easy to slaughter uh, and and kind of mill about a lot more. So they find out that there's a few queens left, and they get through blah blah blah. Let's boil it down. There's a big siege of the last Kadem city. Uh, it's eventually destroyed, but in the process, uh, Tavi and, and and Varg and the boys are able to kill the queen that's there uh, before they retreat off. And now this, they're retreating off, and they need they need even more ships. They had the ships they brought all of the Canaan from Alara on, but now they're escaping with a huge number of the population of the last Canaan city with them. So, so what do you do when you need boats, quick, Scott? Icebergs. Icebergs! Especially when you don't have enough water crafters to protect you from the crazy, powerful ocean-going furies. That's right. Because icebergs are perfectly normal. We don't have to attack those and eat the humans inside them. Mm, they're natural. So, yeah, they get all these, these water crafters to, to shape giant holds inside icebergs. Yeah. And and at this point, you were also introduced to Canem uh, uh, Cavalry, and they ride oh, these yeah. big bulls. and. Max, Antelar Maximus, who has been Tavi's sidekick for four, three books now, he kind of takes a shine to one in a bizarre way. Like the, he, he hates it, but he loves riding it on, into battle. The Targ. Yeah. And, and the Targ that they ride, it's, it's almost like a Klingon-type animal where essentially you have to beat it into attacking someone else instead of attacking you. So, yeah. you know, any, any chance the Targ get, they're going to take a swipe at you. And so Andalar Maximus does have this kind of love-hate relationship with his. Which he named uh, New Boots and Steak. (laughs) (laughs) 
it, I think it's a great aside. Antlar Maximus is one of the best characters in this in this series. Like he he's just got this pure laconic wit. Yeah, he's like the second or third son. He's really kind of out of it. He, no, he's like the half. He's like the half. He, son. he is. No, you're right. He's a half son, right? Uh, he's, he's he's the half breed that doesn't get to do anything cool. Right. So he's he's completely out of the uh, uh, of the succession for his house because he is the son of a high lord, but because his mom's dead and you know the current lady who married him has two kids, he's you know way out of succession. Um. And so, you know, he just kind of goofs his way through and, and, you know, once he hooks up with Tavi, Tavi gives him direction and blah, blah, blah. And he realizes full potential and, oh, it's great. But yeah, his, his wit, <laughs> he, he is hysterical. So everything finishes up. Uh, I think around the end of book five, they load up on the ships and start sailing back. Now we know things are not going well in Alaire at this point. Yeah. Especially just- not for Gaius Sextus. Things aren't going well for guys. Not at all. There's a huge swath of his land that is just uh, covered in, in the croach, the Vord wax forest look. Uh, the Vord have figured out ways of basically uh, taking over uh, Alarans and turning them into their own soldiers. So they have crafters now uh, of these enslaved uh, Alaran citizens. Um, and it's it's not good. It's is bad. <laughs> Is is the siege of the capital in book five, or is that in book six? That that's in book five because that's I think when Gaius like gives out, just blowing everything up. Like, yeah, he, Ga- blo- he basically blows up the capital. Gaius keeps uh, some of his forces to protect the capital and sends quite a few of them away though. Up like he's running north. refugees to south to I think Aquitaine's domain, right? I think so. In the he because Aquitaine's like lord of one of the southern cities. And so, yeah. And so he, he, there is a, there's another, a dormant volcano where the capital is. And yeah, he just, he, once everything's overrun and there's all these Vord inside the capital, he just blows the whole thing. Yeah. And it's, it's a huge devastating blow to the Vord because they lose a massive number of uh, drones and, you know, captured citizens and whatnot. Uh, and Aquitaine, who's out on the road running these refugees, I can't remember if it's a fury or, or a messenger, but someone shows up with like basically the will of uh, Gaius because he knew what he was doing. Yeah, saying Aquitaine, you're in charge until Tavi gets back. It's like, you're, you're my boy. Step up. <laughs> Actually, I think it's more of a hey. For the last six to eight years, you've been scheming for my crown. Ha <laughs> ha! You got it now, sucker. It's yours now. <laughs> I just blew up the capital. Have fun. And. Then we move into book six, and we find out that Lord Aquitaine, as much as Lady Aquitaine's a complete bitch who's just hungry for power, Lord Aquitaine really thinks he's the best. Like, he's an okay guy and just thinks he's better for the job than Sextus. Well, he's got, you know, he's got a lot of skills. He's an excellent war leader. He's a very powerful crafter. So, I mean, his his confidence, is his high esteem of that he holds himself in is, is somewhat well-earned. Yeah. He's just kind of a prick about it. Right. Yeah, and he's like, well, you're not the best for the Empire, so I'm just going to try to get rid of you and kill you. But Tavi shows up pretty close to the beginning of book six. No, he he makes, yeah, well, he he makes landfall, like, halfway through and finally reunites with Aquitaine, and it's like, look, I'm the First Lord now. I need your help on this. <laughs> and 
they they there's so little political things they get the rest of the high lords because like the guy who who watches the the wall of ice yeah both day and night um he you know he really doesn't feel like he can run off and leave the wall even though the rest of the country is being overrun by vord he's 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 a little short-sighted in this well like no i think he's thinking of the long game where it's like we leave this wall we're gonna have to kill the Iceman after we kill the vord yeah, but the Vord are going to kill you if you just let him run amok. Yeah, like, and he he's not totally aware of, you know... How bad it is. How bad it is down there, and very much aware, well, well aware of how bad it could be up there. And so, one of the interesting things we haven't mentioned is that the, the fire crafters, people are really good at, at crafting fire. Not only can they do crazy fireballs and, and whatnot, they can also <laughs> cause people to feel emotions. They can actually stir passions inside people and make them more angry or uh, horny or, you know, whatever. And so Asana's out there, Tavi's mom, and she realizes that the Icemen really aren't all that bad of guys. Yeah. <laughs> they really just don't like all the firebenders. I mean, firecrafters uh, up yeah. on the wall. Kind of gets them all pissed off and irritated all the time. So she actually brokers a truce between the Alarans and the Icemen with the Marat acting as uh, intermediaries because the Marat have an okay relationship with the Icemen. Well, if 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 anyone's going to have an okay relationship with, you know, an eight-foot-tall, fur-covered, ice-wielding giant, it, it's going to be, you know, the Gargant tribe. <laughs> yeah, the guy riding a dire mammoth, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um. So they rally up. They they construct a, a perfect killing ground because th- at this point they realize they got to kill the queen. Yeah. They can kill the head queen. The rest of it is just going to be mop up. And there's a lot of mop up, but it's just mop up at that point. And now Tavi's got full on fury crafting awesomeness. Yeah. So over the last book or two, he uh, we've discovered that he's figured out. Well, and honestly, spoiler as if we haven't spoiled enough, but <laughs> the reason. Tavi wasn't able to bend, and the reason he was always such a runt is that his mom was terrified, Asana was terrified, that people would figure out who he was and either kill him or take him away from her. So she used her, she's a, from book one, she's been portrayed as an extremely strong watercrafter. So she's been, uh, when he was a baby, just a baby, in her, in her arm, she used her watercraft to stunt his growth. And that just, just to make him look younger so they wouldn't click as to, hey, didn't you spend a lot of time around the princeps about eight, you know, however many years ago that kid was born? Right. And somehow, and she doesn't really know how or why, but by doing it, she also somehow stunted his ability to, to interact with Furies. Yeah. But as time goes on, he starts to, to get past that block and, and starts to learn how to craft them himself. Yeah. And then... Now that, you know, the First Lord's dead, he's inherited all of his Furies, which is, like, all of them. <laughs> well, and one of the cool things they do is that there's this Fury that we see before named Alara, and uh, there's this map that the, the First Lord has room, which has stone from all corners of, of the Alaran continent in it. And she is literally the embodiment of the embodiment of the entire continent. Yep. And she's crazy powerful. But she has rules she has to live by. Basically, her rules is she can't do things to only benefit one person. The thing she she will help the first lord, but it's got kind of stuff that helps everybody equally. Mm-hmm. 
So like yes. poking a volcano. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she can't really help him per se, but she's more than willing to teach him everything she knows, which is a lot. So Tavi becomes, by the end of book six, a kind of a badass uh, crafter. Yeah. I keep wanting to say bender, Scott. Yeah, well, because he does. Because by this point, it, it's bending. It's bending. <laughs> so there's a, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a final standoff in Calderon Valley where, where we kind of all this started. And uh, you've got Octavian and his allies and the legions and all of his uh, knight crafters against the Vord. And it's a hell of a fight. It was cool. <laughs> yeah, just I guess to summarize my feelings on the series, the first book, like I said, it was okay, not great. Oh, well, then you know after they win the fight, like Tavi, like it's like we're going to incorporate the Canum into our society and make everything and the better. Marat and Iceman. Yes, it everyone's like, big gonna... multicultural society, and we're going to redistribute the lordships, and we're going to break up the Furies so that they can. Be, people can find them based on merit and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, he, he institutes sweeping reforms. Yeah. Awesome moment of crowning roll credits. Pretty much. And and I believe you get, there's a marriage in there too, isn't there? Yeah, there's a marriage. Where finally he and Kate, who have been... They've, yeah. been linen, they've been living in sin for quite some time. <laughs> like four to six years now. Uh, they've just been unwed, uh, having a good time. But they finally uh, officially, and you know, she Kate is kind of like, ah, why do I have to do this? Well, it's like it's important that I marry you because apparently that means you respect me as a person. But really, we just go up and sign something. Yeah, you guys are messed up. <laughs> you little monkeys! What are you what are you talking about? <laughs> um, but they do get officially uh, uh, married, so they settle down. Uh, do they have kids by the end? Uh, I think there was talk of kids. Yeah, but you know, my peak of the series was book three. The Vord were gone. The Canaan were in full force. And then when the Vord came back in book four, uh, into book four, book five, man, it I just yeah, they're and still it, good. But and it's worth noting that like there's this whole thing where the Vord Queen is like trying to recreate some twisted parody of Alaran society with her, you know, captives and has this bizarre obsession with Kitai and Tavi because they were the ones that woke her up in the wax forest in book one, but it's just like, it's not quite, even have, having a face to the Vord doesn't really help them as an antagonist. No, well, she's such a bizarre face. It's She's not an engage for me at least, she wasn't engaging as as a villain, so adding her on there didn't didn't help me any. If she'd been... A more interesting villain? Like an actual Sarah Kerrigan or the Borg Queen from Star Trek First Contact. Right, but she, as I recall, she was almost schizophrenic. I mean, she yeah. was she was all over the map and just, just bizarrely crazy Yeah. Uh, towards the end of this book where you really couldn't relate to anything. It, it wasn't, she, she wasn't the clever sly villain. She wasn't the megalomaniac. You know, she was just basically a crazy person with, un, with huge power. And armies of Vor to do her bidding. I mean, she randomly just killed people when she, you know, fell into fits of uh, anger, and and the next minute she was, you know, loving and hugging people. And the Lady Aquitaine ends up as one of her girls after that she gets captured and enslaved. Essentially, she's like, "Oh, you're my daughter," and it's man, it's she's she's odd. It's just odd. 
it's odd. So not a huge fan of the board, but despite that, I I really enjoyed the series. I, I, I yeah, like this is well worth reading. Like it, it gets overshadowed by Dresden a lot when you're talking about Jim Butcher novels, and sure. even with recent fantasy, you know there are other names that pop up more, like Pat Rothfuss, in, guys doing epic fantasy, and Codex Solera doesn't come up so much. Well, and Patrick Rothfuss, you know, I love the first two books of of the Name of the Wind series. Are it's not what it's called. Name of the Wind's the first book. It's yeah, the um, King Killer Chronicle. Thank you. Uh, but I've got five years in between, four to five years between books to do stuff. So yeah. someone who can put out a book a year. Or I'm two. Da- or two, because he's writing Dresden and Alara for a while. There, there was that six-year stretch where he was knocking out two a year, and I'm like, hey, George R.R., point. Exactly. <laughs> What's this kid got that you don't? And this is very much a callback to the discussion we had about it a year ago. But, I, I, you know, I will take a reliable... Uh, writer like Steven Erickson, well, he may not be as good a writer as Patrick Rothfuss, but he produces. And and it's not even like it has to be one a year. But if you know, I can count on a steady flow. Like if I know, it takes like say say Brandon Sanderson. You know, he he pops out one every eighteen months or so. Sure. Like I'll, I'll like let, let's average all his release dates out and call it one every eighteen months. And it's like, okay, I can count on him doing something that often. Exactly. You, even if it's every three years, I know I have something to look forward to. See, it, there's a point where you're like, boy, my son is born when your last book came out. He is now in first grade. <laughs> That's not right. Now he's your third book came out, he's in sixth grade. Come on. Yeah. But uh, but that's probably uh, something we we can go over some other time. I, I, you go back and listen to the last episode, the Black Company. Apparently, it's the last episode, uh, the first episode that pops up on the Mimeo page. So just yeah, <laughs> go there and listen to us talk about it for too long. No, just talk- this episode's short. <laughs> no, no, it'll edit down a bit. But it'll edit down a bit. It's not. It. I, I'm Morty. That's okay. Uh and. Especially when there's only two people on, I tend to ramble on a bit. But yeah, and I, I'm fond of the series. I'm happy with it. I don't regret buying all oh, six. Oh, no. And I, I think I read the last four basically back-to-back because the timing was perfect on yeah. the paperback releases. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I have no regrets about buying and owning all six of these books. I, uh, I urge other people to do it. It's... Like I said, there are some weaknesses, why not? But that doesn't take away from the fact that they're they're really well written books and they're very entertaining to read because even though they might have some lame ideas in them, they're very well written technically. And then you have to sit back and at the end of book six, remind yourself he did this on a bet, a yeah, dare even. <laughs> he did this out of spite. Yeah, and it's this like, is what we got. <laughs> it it came out it came out really well. Yeah, and. Jim has talked about doing more in this setting. I hope it happens. Like, the one story Eddie he keeps pip, uh, putting out there is that what happens when a Marat finally binds, uh, gets bound to a Kanem and then have one of them be a cursor. So it's this weird good cop, bad cop thing. <laughs> like, it, it's just like, I would read that. I would read three books of those guys having crazy adventures. Absolutely. All right, man. Should we stick a pin in it? Yeah, I think so. All right, I I need to go. Uh, I need to go curl up in bed. Yeah, same here. 
All right, man. Well, thanks for having me on again. Appreciate well, it. Well, maybe we should do this more than once a year. I, you know, I'm I'm kind of in between my other podcasts, so uh, uh, I'm not doing funny books because it's soccer season, and I haven't done backseat box office because I've been doing, I've been taking classes in addition to working. So uh, I I don't get to podcast like I used to. Well, uh, there is an episode coming up in within one or two about. My, perhaps the best comic in print right now, Atomic Robo. <laughs> oh my god, I love Atomic Robo. I love Atomic Robo. The uh, you know when I got my iPad is when I I discovered and started reading everything digitally. I basically you know the the com- Atomic Robo trays are like four ninety nine digitally. Oh, and so I read. I picked up one. I was like, oh, I heard this is pretty good. Uh, like by the end of the day, I had all five on my iPad. Yeah, so and that- was devouring them. So that's coming. Oh, that's good. And and have you guys dropped the Mass Effect three episode? Yeah, that's that was the last one. I need to go listen to that one because I know you had uh you had Tony. I know you had Tony on. Who else did you have on for that one? Chibi. Chibi, but Sam wasn't there, right? Sam couldn't make it. Yeah, I would love to hear Sam and Chibi just argue. Well, the yeah, finding occasions for Sam and Chibi to argue is always good. Uh, I'm kind of sad Chibi's not making it to Archon because that was. Oh. That was pretty awesome on Backseat Producers 200 with uh, Chibi Chib- 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 and Sam were pretty awesome during that episode. <laughs> um, but all right. Well, uh, thanks again, man. Just uh, I'm, I'm happy to help out whenever you need me, and uh, uh, I'll talk to you later. Okay. See you next time. Bye, everybody. Uh, I thought they smelled bad on the outside. I Thought They Smelled Bad on the Outside is released under an international attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, Creative Commons license version 3.0. Please visit sbopodcast.blogspot.com for more episodes and contact information. Thank you.